The issues that matter most, right here. The Drew Mariani Show. On Relevant Radio. Uh, we're talking about a specific part of it that was changed under the previous administration. From the days of Mayor Koch and Mayor Bloomberg, uh, there was a clear indicator for those who commit serious crimes in the city. Uh, they should be able to be deported after they serve their time. And I continue to believe that as a former police officer. Uh, we have the job of to apprehend those who commit crimes. The prosecutors prosecute. And I think the federal government should use this authority after the time is served to deport the individual. Dangerous people, no matter if they're migrants and asylums or seekers or long-term New Yorkers, should not uh, be uh, carrying out violent acts on New Yorkers. And the overwhelming number of migrants and asylum seekers here are trying to take that next step. But there is a small number that are violent and they're dangerous. The Drew Mariani Show on Relevant Radio. I love to applaud him. That's uh, the New York City Mayor, Eric Adams, on what should change for migrants, uh, migrants and really asylum seekers who commit violent crimes. What an about face, right? I remember hearing him, along with the other mayors and leaders of sanctuary cities, talking about how their doors are open and, you know, we have to treat everyone with dignity. And I agree, you have to treat everyone with dignity. But, boy, the suffering of the citizens of those states, and now it's a sobering wake-up call for those who live in Chicago, those who live in New York, uh, various cities in California, throughout the country, that is uh, Denver, who have opened their doors. Um, at least Mayor Adams is recognizing, okay, maybe things need to change, right? And we're seeing even the president begin to do about-face. Now, I don't know whether this is because we're in, the, in an election cycle now, Things are going to get heated up. This is the number one issue for most Americans because they're really feeling the effects of it. Uh, it's, it's overrunning not only their cities, but it's taxing their budgets. It's it's a severe issue. So uh, we'll talk more about it coming up. Chuck Nemeth will be stopping by. There's some well, there's a lot of developments regarding what's been happening on the streets of America. I'll bring you up to speed on all of that. I've also been monitoring um, thousands of people. And I think about what I would do, right? Ask yourself what you would do. You know, if, if you're in China or if you are in Russia and the government says you can't come out, don't put flowers on the tomb of this person, don't come out for a protest, don't even come out to say a prayer, would you come out knowing that you could possibly be arrested? Would you allow your spouse to do that or your child? Thousands of people in Moscow turned out as they buried the Russian opposition leader to Putin, Alexei Navalny, who, of course, died very mysteriously in prison, right? He was poisoned multiple times. Uh, they did that at the risk of their own arrest. Uh, his team had difficulty, you know, getting a church to agree to hold the funeral. But finally, the church of the icon of the mother of God in his home district allowed it there. So let me share a little bit more. This comes from uh, international outlet Sky News. Uh, the body of Alexei Navalny is now in the church behind me. And you said a, a thousand people. I would say many, many thousands of people have come to pay a final respect 
to Alexei Navalny. We'll just point the camera down the road. You'll see the, 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 the way the line stretches, and it's not just here. It's on the other side of the boulevard. People are crowding in shop fronts all around the front of the church. They were clapping as the body went in. They were chanting Navalny. They were chanting Alexei. It was a very moving moment, and I think that many of people in this uh, huge crowd have brought flowers and want to have the opportunity to say goodbye one last time to a man who brought so many of them out onto the streets for the last more than a decade. Well, he, uh, he didn't have to go back to Russia. He did. He was ultimately arrested, ended up in a penal colony in one of the most brutal, most frigid places in all of, of all of Russia. And, of course, died. His wife has been very vocal. CNN actually was broadcasting the funeral live. About 20 minutes into it, the signal was cut off, as was the feed that Navalny's team was providing. Now, Navalny's wife, Yulia uh, Navalny, she told CNN that um, she's concerned police are going to crack down on the on the mourners who attend. So uh, reports say that about 45 people across Russia have been been arrested so far for paying their respects. So take now, don't take for granted your freedoms. I mean, we live in a great country. This is the greatest nation, really, in the, in the history of the planet. What we have contributed to civilization, our, our, our inventions, our career, our, the, the, just the blessings that have come from this country in terms of wealth and technology and so much, uh, the freedoms, the former government. And yet we take it for granted, I think. I see the destruction of it, actually. I see the the smoke of socialism creeping in and that concerns me you do not want russia you do not want china right you don't want totalitarian dictatorships you don't want communism and there's some bizarre policies that are now happening in our own country so i just want to put that on your on your radar uh cbs and walgreens announced today and if you can avoid going there you know, it's up to you. I, I, If I can not shop at a CVS or a Walgreens, I'm going to try to do that personally. Uh, did you hear what they're doing? They're going to start selling abortion pills this month. Yeah. According to the New York Times, Walgreens pharmacies in New York, Pennsylvania, Massachusetts, California, and Illinois are going to start selling them next week. Though they said it would be in a small number of stores. CVS is going to start selling them in Massachusetts and Rhode Island. Uh, they will not, however, be mailing them out. Thank God. Right? Thank God for that. Both, both chains plan on eventually expanding to dispensing them in every state in the union. And uh, they're not going into states where abortion is illegal. But I would write to them. If you're in your state, just tell them, you know what? I'm going to look for an alternative. I am not going to frequent Walgreens or CVS. You know, uh, you might think, oh, it's not going to make a difference. Maybe it won't. If enough people wrote to him, look what happened with Bud Light, right? Why do they need to dispense abortion pills? It's, it's, it's disgusting where we are right now. But you will see a lot of suffering as, as a result of that decision. Um, there was a, a bill. And you want to see one more story here. It's kind of wacky, right? Uh, my gosh, I, 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 we are living in bizarre world. There, there was a bill in Illinois. And God bless the citizens of Illinois, man. The type of government that they have to deal with. Uh, a bill in Illinois seeks to redefine the term child abuse. Now, wait to hear this. Well, what are they doing? Listen to this. They're going to redefine the term child abuse, abuse as including parents who do not consent to their children receiving puberty blockers, cross-sex hormones, transgender surgeries, and abortions. 
So now you are a child abuser if you don't want your 13-year-old to get an abortion. You're a child abuser if you don't want your little boy to say, hey, mommy, I think I'm a girl. I'm going to start getting injected with hormones. I mean, it's crazy. It's absolutely insane. Shame on Illinois. And if you are a citizen of that state, write to your legislature as well. That bill wants to redefine the term child abuse. And if you are a parent in that state, you consent. You know, you don't want your child to have an abortion or go through these cross-sex hormones or puberty blockers or surgeries. No, you're going to be, you're going to be, you're considered a child abuse. It's weird. It's just weird. The, the Daily Wire reported that the bill would also allow minors to consent to abortions and these transgender procedures without their parents' consent. So your 16, 17-year-old mom, you don't, you know, you don't have any control over me or whatever the kids say, right? You know how rebellious teens can be and how the frontal cortex of, of the brain of a young man isn't even fully developed until he's 25 or 30, they can say, hey, F you, mom, dad, no way. We're not doing this. I'm doing what I want. I am going to have my genitalia removed. You know, I'm going to have this surgery. I'm going to have this abortion. It's terrible. Absolutely, absolutely terrible. Um, we'll see how this all shakes out. Uh, I'll continue to monitor it for you. Uh, the final thought on this, and again, the Daily Wire, Wire was reporting on that. Um, if, you know, if this all goes through, minors not only consent to abortions and transgender procedures without their parents' consent, but listen to this, one final caveat, just to show you how weird it is. It would allow the state's Department of Children and Family Services to step in, and if they deem it necessary, remove the child from their biological parents based on that new definition of abused child. We are in trouble. I mean, we are going to have a generation of children who are really, really going to be wounded. So it's House Bill 4876. House Bill 4876 uh, shields doctors from liability if they decide to go ahead with those procedures without a parent's consent. Can't get an aspirin in some schools without a parent's consent. And yet, you can put a child through abortion or, or transsexual surgeries. It's absolutely horrible. There is one, oh, I'll pass on that story. There, there's one more. So I was going to tell you about a police officer who's who's kind of working the system against them. He's, uh, he's, he's a cop in Chicago who's suing the police department because they won't let him change his race, even though they will allow employees to change their genders. And that's how weird it is, right? Let me tell you the story. I, I wasn't going to share with you, but I'll, I'll share with you. This guy's name is Muhammad Yusuf, right? So he says he's looking to change his race from Caucasian, as he currently identifies as an Egyptian, and African-American. So he's been overlooked for promotions because of his race, right? He's listed as Caucasian. You can't be Caucasian today, right? No, you can't be a white man in our society, right? So all these other minorities are now getting promoted ahead of him. So he's decided to change, you know, if you can change your gender, why can't you change your race, right? Why can't you do that? If I say, hey, I'm no longer a man, I'm a woman, you've got to respect that, right? You have to identify me by my new pronoun. Why can't this guy do the same thing so he gets promotions? He's been overlooked. I love it. I hope he's successful. That's the way to use it, right? Good, good for him. Good for him. Um also, uh, one final story, and then I'll hit Chuck Nemeth, who's going to be stopping. I will talk a little immigration. Joe Biden was at the border yesterday. Um, 
And you also have been hearing a lot about in vitro fertilization on the show recently. In fact, Timory's going to be stopping by. She got a special guest coming up in her broadcast a little later today. I'll fill you in on that. Um, you remember Alabama Supreme Court ruling? I've talked about it several times throughout the week. Um, oh, gosh, defining a human embryos as a human being, right? Well, you know that the Catholic Church's teaching uh, was very clear on this, and we've gone through it with ethicists here. There's a very high-profile Catholic that you probably know the name of, and he disagrees with the Catholic Church's teaching on in vitro fertilization. Let me guess the name. Well, if you said Joe Biden, you'd be right. He told a press scrum that the ruling shows disregard for women's ability to make these decisions for themselves and their family. So listen to this. Here's a soundbite from EWTN. They were right outside the White House. They leveled a question at him. Check this out. Mr. President, the Alabama ruling, I want to ask you about the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church says IVF is immoral and wrong because it destroys countless human embryos. What do you say to that? I don't agree with that position. And we'll talk more about it you know, later. We've dealt with this a lot. If you missed any of this, we've explained the church's teaching on this and what Alabama's saying. And I just say, say a prayer for President Biden. He's not the only politician saying that. Alabama's Republican legislature scrambled to pass a bill protecting IVF. And there's a bill in the U.S. Senate that would do the same thing. But that's now being blocked by Republicans. The U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops, our own USCCB, they criticized that bill saying that a legal right to it should not be established. So there's a lot going on. It's a story that's not going away. We'll talk much more about it. Hey, I don't know what part of the nation right now you are tuned into me, but if you are in some of those sanctuary cities, you know uh, what's happening with our open borders. And uh, even if you're not in a sanctuary city, I, you know, we see, um, we see horrible crime taking place. Uh, Lake and Riley, she was on that run last week. Remember this horrible story? She was out for a jog, broad daylight. She went missing. Roommates call the police. They find her brutally. And I won't be descriptive about what happened to her, but brutally murdered. So they arrest a guy. His name is uh, Jose Antonio Bata. And he was uh, arrested in the death of this nursing student. This took place at the University of Georgia. And it stirred all sorts of controversy up because Zabara is uh, in this country illegally. He's originally from Venezuela. He'd already been arrested when he arrived here, but then he was released because of the current administration's policies. So the mainstream media has been covering up the fact, and instead of focusing on safety, you know, instead of talking about the reality of this, I've heard so many pieces where they're talking about safety tips for women, why they shouldn't, you know, they should know the areas they're jogging and all these other things they can do. It's ridiculous. And then I saw a lot of the liberal media do the same thing. They, they were talking about how this is a giant you know, um, talking point now for Republicans, how Republicans are sensationalizing um, th this crime. This is a murder of a woman by a, a man who should not have been here. And if we had perhaps better policies at the border, it may not have happened. Meanwhile, in Louisiana, a 19-year-old Honduran man who is here illegally was arrested after terrorizing his neighborhood for nearly a month. He was caught after allegedly stabbing a man during a robbery and raped a 14-year-old girl. In Maryland, another illegal immigrant from El Salvador was charged with a murder in connection with the shooting death of a two-year-old and injuring his 17-year-old mother. The immigrant was part of a group of people 
that were shooting at each other in a public park over a drug deal. Mom and boy were caught in a crossfire. Those are just three incidences that in the space of a week, and they're making people look at the connection between increased crime and illegal immigration, this, this porous border. I'm joined right now by Professor Charles Nemeth. He's the director of the Criminal Justice Program at Franciscan University of Steubenville, also the author of over 50 books on criminal justice and law enforcement, including Crime and Aquinas and Aquinas in the Courtroom. It's good to have him back with us again. Doctor, I am so grateful to have you here. Good afternoon. Always a pleasure, Drew, and I, I don't know how I'm going to top all the craziness you just did, but I think I can. <laughs> I, yeah, I'm sure you can, and I'm going to throw you, I'm going to, I'm going to hand you the football, and you can run with it. I, I, let's start with something very broad. Is there a connection between increasing crime and increasing illegal immigration, or is that not necessarily the case? I'm sure there are those who say, look, you're hyping these stories, and you know most immigrants are law-abiding people, and I believe they probably are, but boy, we do have... I, I, there's got to be an increase in crime as a result of it. But give me your take on it. Well, I, I see a significant correlation between what is happening from the very start of the of the immigration movement, which is the journey up here to the American border. Uh, many of the people that are in the caravan, so to speak, and all the people that are moving through, some of them are good, some of them are not so good. But they are being victimized in a whole host of ways, particularly young children, uh, young women, uh, they're being extorted uh, to pay fees in order to get into the United States. They're being sexually abused. There's child sex trafficking. This is just on the journey to get to the border. And then when they get to our border, a great many of them will just surrender themselves and get a form for a case trial or a hearing in nine or ten years from now. But there are many that simply escape, and we don't even know who they are. So the third part of the problem, aside from the sheer volume of people coming in without being processed like immigration used to be processed, is there's no vetting. We just simply don't know because many of the countries in which people are coming in do not have a vetting process. The Yemenis don't. The Ethiopians don't. Many of these countries, they just allow people. And in some cases, as they did in Cuba, they are emptying, emptying not their best and the brightest, but some of their worst and allowing them to infiltrate the United States. It's an emptying out of very troublesome personalities in some cases and some very good people in others. Either way, whether they're good or bad, they have to be vetted. And then, of course, the policies of the sanctuary cities and states uh, are simply to uh, tell ICE to go take a hike. And, And when you catch them doing other things, you can't turn them over to ICE in New York City or Chicago or San Francisco. You have, And, of course, couple that with they have no bail. They get released, and then it, this whole cycle just keeps going round and round where criminality keeps increasing. So I, I don't think it's no. uh, a fantasy. I think it's a stark reality. Yeah, yeah, I wonder if we're going to reach a tipping point, though. If the pendulum can only swing so far in one direction before it's got to come back, the mayor of New York, uh, Eric Adams, recently said that you know the Big Apple should relook at the sanctuary city status, and I applaud him for that. You know, I mean, he was one of the guys along with mayors from Chicago and and California, various cities there, and and in Colorado, amongst others, that were opening their arms wide. And now they see their streets overflowing. They see the number of crime on the rise. Uh, President Biden apparently has told sanctuary cities to turn these criminals now over to ICE, to Immigration and Custom Enforcement. But uh, that's a 180 on the part of, uh, of, of Eric Adams. 
What do you think is happening? Are, are we going to reach well, a tipping I, I point where things are going to change? Yeah, Eric Adams is under a lot of pressure from the residents of New York, but it's city council that's created this sanctuary city, and he cannot universally sweep it away. He's making small proposals to it, such as you're not in sanctuary if you're committing felonies here in New York. But that is yet to pass yet. Nor has President Biden issued any executive decrees. He's just talking about it. He's not, he hasn't done anything yet. So I'm a great believer that you have to suffer substantially enough to change yeah, the culture of any place. And and I'm old enough to remember what New York City used to be like in the mid and late 70s. And and oh. it was really bad. Yeah. And I'm not sure New York has reached that stage again. But it will reach that stage again with these policies. And then somebody will come along who will have the guts to do what has to be done yeah. in order to restore law and order. Uh, doctor, I don't, so, not, I'm not sure we're there yet. And, and I agree with you. I mean, it can certainly get a lot, a lot worse. I, I, I have problem really trying to I, I consider myself relatively rational. I don't understand these policies. I mean, they're not bearing good fruit. You, you can see what has come of them, yet they're continuing to be promoted. What's the agenda behind those in power that, that are passing policy like this that do nothing but harm communities? Well, I, I would say on the uh, on the sweep across the border, I think there is an effort here on the part of certain politicos to allow illegal voting to take pay, place in mass numbers. If you're in a jurisdiction that doesn't have an ID requirement, who's to stop anybody from voting for who? There's no checking that goes on. So I think that's one of the policies. And I think the other rationale for some of the more particular policies is because uh, in all the years I spent in New York City and working at Mm -hmm. John Jay, I was always amazed at how many of the professors and the elite class, they always they always seemed to think that if they didn't do these things, they weren't being nice or they were they were being racist or they, the system was being racist. No. And I have never, ever, ever bought into those arguments. Mm-hmm. I judge people simply by the content of their character. I don't care what race they are. I'm not looking at that. But on the other hand, uh, the, the nature of identity politics yeah. and identity yeah. higher ed has really destroyed clear thinking on what policies work and what doesn't. That is so true. I, I could not have said it better. I share that passion completely. You know, the pre- both presidents, uh, former President Trump, current President Biden, uh, were at the border and um, each had different reactions with the different places. Donald Trump said that if he's elected, he's going to do a, a massive sweep to port a lot of illegal immigrants. Is that even possible? And then, and second, you know, how's it going to impact you know their families and their lives? I mean, I, I don't know how we remedy the problem other than closing the border and trying to resolve that issue. But uh, give me your take on on this as you see it. Well, I think President Trump said the first step we would take would be to go after everyone who has a criminal background and have them deported. Okay, and I, so that's a selective group of people. That's not everybody, but there's a certain portion of them that are here, and they are causing a lot of havoc, and that's what we have to initially concentrate on. The other thing we, we're going to have to do is we're going to have to ask ourselves whether or not our our collective common good can withstand the amount 
uh, of expenditure that is going on in all of these states now. Everybody is spending enormous, extraordinary amounts of money while they're neglecting their own citizens. And this is going to rile up an awful lot of bitterness in our general general population. So at a minimum, aside from uh, trying to deport the, the worst of the worst, I think we, we need to shut that border. It has to be closed, lock, stock, and barrel. And, so, and as a nation state, we have every right to do that. No, you're right. Uh, you know, the other issue that is now starting to come to light a little bit, like we got a lot of border in this country, north and south. Three Chinese men were caught by Border Patrol in Maine. And this is a great story because, gosh, Maine can be so rural in some places. You can walk between Canada and Maine very easily. They were arrested. The fourth guy who was helping them was also arrested. And with our current policies, do, do, do we know? And I think these were, again, Chinese nationals. Um, do we know who's coming in and, and who no, might no, be a danger? Well, and, and We do not know. What's this mean uh, to national security? These people. No, a large portion, we have no idea. And it's just this uh, uh, intentional ignorance which seems to be advancing agendas that are not consistent with the nature of our of our protection. So it, 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 it really – you had said this before, Drew, and it's really well said. Uh, how do these people think? What's going on in their minds? You've got to scratch your head, just like uh, you were talking about reclassifying child abuse. Well, I have one that can top that. Yeah, we don't want to call them child molesters anymore. We don't want to call them pedophiles. We want to call them minor attracted persons. They're, they're now maps, Ugh. and that way you can decriminalize all the That's activities terrible. they're doing and turn it into something soft and yeah. not as offensive. Boy, it's such an attack on the family. You know, Sister Lucia DeSantis, she did that interview with Cardinal Cafaro in 85 and talked about the, the great battle that in, loomed in the not-too-distant future between Satan and, and, uh, and, and, and the world. And, of course, she talked about the attack on family and marriage. And you see kids and families just, man, they're in the crosshairs of the evil. And this is all evil. It really is. Doctor, I'm grateful to have you here. If people want to follow you or get connected or read your work, what's the best way to do that? Uh, they can always find me at franciscan.edu, and uh, it's a great institution that I'm very honored to be uh, at every day of the week. Well, I'm honored to have you here. I always appreciate your insights and your, your expertise. So we'll talk again soon, I hope. Okay, Drew. Thanks very much. Enjoy Bye-bye. your weekend. It's Dr. Uh, Charles Nemeth. Say a prayer for him. Bottom of the hour, when we come back, I'm going to change gears. If you are suffering, maybe you're going through a really difficult time right now, I'm just wondering why a good, loving, merciful God would permit tragedy in the world or perhaps even in your life give you a unique perspective stay with me sponsor of the university of dallas the catholic university for independent thinkers invites high school juniors seniors and recent graduates to study the great books this summer at ud's two-week-long arate program while earning three hours of college credit info at relevantradio.com Slash you, Dallas. The Drew Mariani Show. The Drew Mariani Show on Relevant Radio. Faith over fear. Well, we'll pray the chaplet in about 30 minutes. So please tell someone else. Um, have them join you, especially if they're going through a difficult time. You know, I listen to some of the intentions that come in during the chaplet of Divine Mercy. And, uh, you know, I'm haunted by them. I was up last night just answering some emails and... So much suffering, so much tragedy out there, and it's hard to get your head around it, isn't it? 
especially if you're going through it right now, you just found out your spouse is diagnosed with cancer or maybe your child. Maybe, maybe you lost your job and you're thinking, how am I ever going to get by? I'm too old. Can't get another job. What am I going to do? You know, maybe you're struggling financially. Maybe there's a cross in your life. Maybe you see the senselessness of these shootings or wars or the fentanyl crisis. Maybe somebody you love died that way. Why does God permit suffering? It's a mystery, right? How can trials that are draped in darkness, how can they be a source of light? You know, this is a great mystery. It's intertwined in the very fabric of our existence. God allows suffering, not as an act of abandonment. But, but really, I, I believe that as a profound invitation for you to trust deeper and to surrender. The way I look at it, I see suffering as almost a canvas sometimes when I'm going through it. I don't understand it. I don't want it. I don't like it. But God's grace can paint extraordinary works of love. He can transform my suffering into something good. He can do the same thing for you. Suffering is not meaningless. It is not meaningless. And when you unite it to Christ on the cross, that's when it becomes really powerful. That's when it becomes meritorious, when it's embraced, when it's born, when it's sanctified, you know, it's transfigured. You know, it's, if you want to amplify your prayer, you, know, you want to make sense of your suffering. You want to grow in holiness and sanctity, achieve a higher degree of holiness. Then unite your suffering to that of the Lord on the cross. I mean, look, Christ revealed that suffering, you know, um, when united to a sacrifice became meritorious, right? It's a profound exchange. St. Paul writes, you know, I, I rejoice in my sufferings. You know, he says, my, my, in my flesh, I'm filled up. What is lacking in the afflictions of Christ on behalf of his body, which is the church? You know, this is something I want to look at today. There's a new book out. It's called Suffering, Whatever Catholic Needs to Know. It's from Augustine Institute or Ignatius Press. Uh, in just a second, Mark Gieschek is going to be joining me. He just wrote this. Uh, I remember my last conversation with him. I really enjoyed him. This is a beautiful book, and I want to endorse it because I, I think none of us is immune from suffering. We all have crosses in this life. All of us do. And this will give you perspective. This will give you insight. This will really help you when you are in that crucible of suffering to come to understand and unlock the depth of love that Christ has for you. It'll help you to trust beyond what you can see, to love beyond what you currently feel. You know, I, I have one final thought. I often think about the divine economy of salvation. Yeah, No tears ever wasted. No pain is in vain. St. Faustina, she had said that she would embrace all the sufferings of all the martyrs ever if it meant just moving one degree higher in heaven, one degree closer to God. The saints understood this. They embraced it. Your suffering, your suffering can be a bridge to eternal life. And I'm telling you, uh, if you're going through it and you're having difficulty and you're saying, Drew, I just can't do it, give us a call. Uh, the number's 888 914-9149. I'm joined right now by a professor of sacred scripture at the Augustine Institute Graduate School of Theology and uh, honored to talk to him about his latest book, Suffering, Whatever Catholic Should Know. Professor Gieschek, it's good to have you back with me. Hey, it's great to be with you, Drew. So, uh, you know, this is one of those great mysteries of life, isn't it? I mean, you see, I, I have a, from one of my colleagues here at the network, Dave Durand, 
his wife uh, was marching in a parade in Waukesha, Wisconsin. And a guy randomly drove his SUV through that crowd, killing these people, made national news. He kissed his wife goodbye that afternoon, thought he'd see her later. She's only in her 50s. She never came home. Uh, I shared earlier about a young boy who was just outside playing. He got shot by somebody who was undocumented in this country. I mean, the mother, that was her world. Now she has no one. Unpack this for us. Explain the theological foundation of, of suffering, maybe in the context of our of, of our faith, how we should look at it, why a good and loving and merciful father would ever allow his children to suffer. I don't want my kids to suffer. Yeah. Suffering, you know, it's universal. It's, uh, it's unavoidable. It's inevitable. And, uh, and yet when it comes into our lives, it's a huge problem, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a huge problem. And, you know, one of the best definitions, I think, comes from St. John Paul II, where he said, suffering in itself is an experience of evil. It's an experience of evil. I think that's really important for us to keep in mind when we talk about, you know, spiritual growth or the saints loving suffering or suffering drawing us closer to God. We have to remember that it's an experience of evil, right? And that God is powerful enough to draw good out of evil. And I I think, you know, one of the greatest challenges that comes with suffering uh, isn't just the pain itself, but it's the kind of disorientation that it brings about in our lives. Right? There's a way in which, you know, you know, we expect most days to be normal, right? That we kind of get up and, you know, smell the fresh air. We go about our business. We have a routine. And there's a great comfort and a consolation in that. But when suffering arrives in our lives, like in these kind of tragic cases that you just mentioned, it just disrupts all of that. It, it overturns the apple cart of our lives. And all of a sudden, we have to totally change the way that we think about our lives and our, and our daily business. And I think that that, um, that kind of confusion and disorientation can really, really challenge our faith, because we think, well, God is good, God is loving, God has given me all these blessings, and when those blessings start to disappear or be, like, tragically eliminated from our lives, all of a sudden we can, we can say, Lord, what are you doing, right? Why, why are you allowing this to happen, right? Why, why do you let bad things happen to good people? And I think that that, that kind of confusing nature to suffering is one of the most one of the biggest challenges that we have to deal with. And the problem is that, that we respond to it, I think, as if it's like a trivia question. Mm-hmm. Like, I have this horrible problem to solve, and I have to think about it a lot to kind of figure it out. And um, I don't know if that really helps us that much. There's a great quote from an English monk named Dom Hubert Van Zeller. He says, you cannot think your way to, to God in suffering. The only thing that helps is prayer. Yeah. And I think that's a great reminder for us, right, that when we suffer and we experience that confusion and disorientation, we should remind ourselves that suffering is normal. It's a normal part of life. Every single one of us is going to die at the end of the story, right, and that, and that suffering is something that we have to learn to accept, right? It's not something that we can totally avoid. Yeah, you know, yeah, one of my favorite quotes from John Paul on suffering, and he showed us really how to suffer in the end of his life. It was a real lesson to me just on the transforming nature of, of suffering. He said that it's, uh, it's in suffering more than anything else that clears the way for grace, which ultimately transforms the human soul. So we don't always see what's going on, do we, when we're in the midst of these, these trials? I mean, St. Augustine, was, you know, he, he said that God only permits evil if there's a greater good that can come out of it. So God's in control. When you're in the midst of that storm, it's hard to believe all that. But really, there's a lot going on that we may not recognize or even see. Yeah. You know, we look to God to take away our sufferings. 
And, you know, we, we ask him, Lord, you know, please take away all these terrible things that are happening to me. But weirdly, he doesn't do that, right? Instead, he actually comes down from heaven, becomes one of us, and takes up his cross, walks up Mount Calvary, and dies on that cross for our sins. And you're like, Lord, that wasn't what I had in mind, <laughs> right? I mean, I didn't really want you to come down here and, and enter into our sufferings. I just wanted you to take mine away. And I think that, you know, the fact that the Lord did that for us reveals something to us about the nature of suffering, right? That, that suffering in some ways redeems us, mm-hmm. right? And, and, and somehow the, the trials that are present in our lives um, actually test us, right? They're, they're a trial for us, and they prove our virtue. You know, sometimes I, I think of, um, you know, the sort of greatest heroes that we celebrate, you know? And a lot of times there are people who have gone through terrible suffering, right? People who have, you know, given their lives for, for the sake of a great mission or a cause, right? People who have, who have suffered terrible things and have kind of lived to tell the story and mm-hmm. regain hope and joy. And I think that suffering, while it is an experience of evil, it's also strangely an opportunity, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's an opportunity to, to grow, it, like spiritually, and it's an opportunity to kind of offer ourselves back to God in the midst of our pain. Yeah, my guest today, Dr. Uh, Mark Gieschak, if you want to join us, maybe you're going through a tough time right now. Maybe maybe you're thinking, man, I just can't, I can't carry this cross anymore. I don't know why God is doing that. Maybe you need some help or some strategy or some perspective. Maybe you disagree with what we're saying. Feel free to give us a call. Phones are open for you. We'll take a few calls on the other side of this short break. The number is 888-914-9149. There is a new book out. They may help you. It's a great read, this Lent, and I think it's really beautiful. The cover's uh, spectacular. It's called Suffering. Very simply, one word, what every Catholic should know. Available at Ignatius Press, and I'm sure all Catholic bookstores and all major bookstores, and it's been endorsed by some very prominent names. We'll talk more when I return. Feel free to give us a call. Don't go away. Your Virtual Parish. The Drew Mariani Show on Relevant Radio. Hey, you looking for a new job? How about one that offers opportunities for spiritual, social, and charitable growth? Our sponsor, Catholic Order of Foresters, is hiring new agents today. Visit relevantradio.com slash Forrester. An Illinois Life Insurance Society, not available in all states. Tell one friend about the Chaplet of Divine Mercy. I'm not holding a small cup, Drew. I'm handing <laughs> a, uh, holding an extra large cup. A bucket. Every weekday at 4 Eastern, 1 Pacific on Relevant Radio. Me. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for joining me. Good to be here with you. It really is. I just enjoy spending my afternoon with you and really going to look forward to praying with you in about 10 minutes or so. So if you'd like to get in for the chaplet, you can always try to do that. Right now, though, we are talking with uh, Dr. Mark Gieschak. And if uh, you want to get in, that number is good for you, okay? 888-914-9149. We're exploring the mystery of suffering, you know, and, and we all have different degrees of it, right? We have got, I think we all have crosses in this life. It's an opportunity to grow in virtue and holiness and and it's sanctity to draw closer to God. It's a way for us to exercise our trust and our faith. Uh, and I really believe you'll see the results of that, and you will grow in, in holiness. Uh, Dr. Gieschek wrote a book called Suffering. Whatever Catholics should know. He's talking to him during the break. He says, if you want to pick up a, ca- a copy of it, go to catholic.market. It's catholic.market. You'll be able to get it uh, there. And, Doctor, it's great to have you here Um uh, once again, um, you know, there's another aspect of this. Quite often, I think of the guy Dave Duran I was talking to you about who lost his wife. 
not a, you know one of the great crosses, one of the great sufferings of life, also is grief. It didn't seem fair that his wife would be taken from him, you know, or somebody's home who was lost in a fire, or somebody's child who died in a car accident. How does grief play into all this? Yeah, I think think grief actually kind of gives us the agenda for what we should do when we suffer. There was a, a great psychiatrist, Elizabeth Keebler Ross, who laid out the five stages of grief. It begins in denial, right, and then anger, bargaining, depression, and then finally acceptance. Now, these aren't like theological categories, but I really feel like they help kind of chart out what goes on in the grieving soul. Right at the beginning, at, at the moment when your loved one is taken away from you, there's just a kind of sense of unreality, like this couldn't have happened, right? A sense of denial, right? I, I don't even want to think about it. Um, but then that gives way to these other phases in our emotional life. But they need to resolve at some point, right? We need to be able to, like, uh, flip the page and move on to the next chapter. And that's when we get to that stage of acceptance. And I think that with all sufferings, there's a kind of grieving process that needs to go on. Right? You know, if you think of, say, for example, experiencing an injury or, or being diagnosed with a serious illness, right, there's a, a kind of sense of unreality to it at the beginning, and yet we need to learn to accept it in order that we can seek the right therapies and, and take care of our bodies and so forth. Um, and it really changes our lives in a way that we didn't plan for or didn't expect or didn't want. I, I, I think that suffering has a way of kind of grabbing the steering wheel of life and taking us in a direction that we didn't want to go. Yeah. But if you talk to somebody who's been through that process of grief, right, yeah. and they've worked their way all the way to acceptance, there's really something deeper about that person, right, that they've changed. They've, like, achieved a kind of emotional maturity that maybe the rest of us haven't. And I, I think that's the, one of the values of suffering is that it can lead us to like a deeper spirituality and a deeper maturity. That's well said. Uh, let's grab a phone call or two. 888 Norma is in Miami, Florida. Hi, Norma. You're on the air with uh, Dr. Mark Gieschek. Welcome. Uh, hi. Um, I was um, just wondering um, if you could tell me something that would give me some hope. Um, my mother is 94 years old. She's been diagnosed with uh, dementia. Uh, she's been getting worse for the past four years, progressively worse. And obviously she's not going to get any better. And uh, now to the point that she doesn't recognize us anymore. Uh, she, we are just a familiar face to her. Um, and that is so, so sad to see a woman that was so independent and uh, and now that she's completely dependent on us and the caregivers for everything, everything. And, uh, and then on top of that, two years ago, my husband got diagnosed with stage four cancer. And, um, and I, I go into the chapel and I sort of ask God, um, why does my mother need to continue to suffer this way? Uh, she didn't have a very good life in the sense that she she had to leave my brother behind um, when he was uh, 17 years old uh, because there was no chance of him getting out of the country. And she wanted a, a better life for my sister and I. And... Um, and she suffered tremendously, leaving her her oldest son behind. Ugh. And uh, she would, yeah. I would see her cry almost every night. 
So, and now, in her old age, yeah. she still continues to suffer. And I don't understand. I ask God, you know, how much more suffering can somebody take? Doctor, I'll let you respond. I'll let you address that for Norma. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us. It's really profound. And to see all of the different layers and um, of the story and, and how your family has suffered, it, it's, really, um, it's really heartbreaking. Um, I think maybe one category that might be helpful to you is what the psychologists refer to as anticipatory grief. And I, I think this is exactly what's going on in your relationship, both with your mother and your husband, where it's like you know that the end of the story is around the corner, and yet your loved one is kind of being taken away from you one day at a time as the mind goes and as familiarity goes with these things like dementia and Alzheimer's. Um, and I think that, you know, during these times, there's a kind of bittersweetness, right, where we can experience both the pain of loss, but we can also look back and remember all of the good times. And I think it's that kind of that bittersweetness that we need to, to experience, right, that we look back and we think of all the wonderful ways in which this person has meant so much to us and why it's painful to lose them. And then also, you know, look forward to the end, right, and remember that in the end, they'll be welcomed into the arms of Jesus, yeah. and that that's ultimately what matters at the end of the story. Yeah. Norma, hang in there, okay? We're going to be praying the Chabot for coming up here in a minute, and of course, we'll remember you in our prayers. I only have a few minutes, so let me sneak a few more calls in for the doctor. Helen's in Rhode Island. Helen, good afternoon. Hi, Helen, you're on the air. All right, let me put her back in queue here for just a quick second here. Uh, let me go to uh, Grace in Eden, Utah. Grace, hi, you're on the air. Hi, how are you? Well, thank um, you. I was just reflecting. I just heard in the last few days, I don't know if it was on my Halo app or where it was, but a differentiation between pain and suffering that I thought was mm. profound, that animals feel pain, but humans suffer. And uh, it, it made me think about my sister who lost... Uh, two young children, two daughters, one to a brain tumor, and about seven years later, uh, my goddaughter and niece to a choking accident. And, of course, immense grief, immense suffering. And a few months after Marie passed, she was in her shower just crying out to, to God, why did you take my girls? I need oh, them back. Horrible. And she heard loud and clear God say, if you knew they weren't guaranteed heaven, would you want them back? Wow. And they were five years old and three years old. So she knew that two of her eight children were in heaven. And it was such a, a comfort to her in her time of terrible grief. Well, Grace, thank you. Thank you for calling and, and for sharing that. Um, Doctor, that's a beautiful way of, of looking at it as well. And, you know, one of the things that I think we always have to look at is we have to stand on that scripture of Romans eight twenty, where God always brings good out of every situation, even though we don't see it. Um, how does one suffer well? How does one trust? How does one, you know, put their hand their their life in the loving embrace of our Lord when they're in these difficult times? Are there strategies for somebody right now who is loved ones dying of cancer, or they're very frightened about what the future might hold? What advice would you give? Yeah, I think one of the keys is to remember that each of our lives is a story with a beginning, a middle, and an end. 
And that as we work through the most difficult chapters in our lives, the ones that are most filled with tragedy and grief and suffering, we need to remember that there are other chapters up ahead that we haven't encountered yet, and that there might be joys and, you know, wonderful things in those chapters that we don't even know about. And it's just so important for us to be flexible with God and with life, and remember that we can't hang on to anything here on earth with a kind of iron grip. We have to at the end, surrender everything back to God. And so along the way, the Lord invites us to make moments of surrender, right? There are many occasions at which we just need to surrender our lives to God and say, Lord, I'm not in control of this story, but I know you are, and I pray that it has a good ending where I come into your presence forever. Daisy's in Hollywood, Florida. Daisy, hi, you're on the air with Dr. Grischek. Go right ahead, Grischek. Hi. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Um, yeah, I just, I just need two words as for me to help my, my friend. Um, she had several miscarriages and she really wants to be a mother. So unfortunately she, um, went to the wrong route and IVF and five more times lost the babies. And the last time now, um, well, one time she was, she has one, one child that she was able to conceive through IVF, but and the last one, uh, she just um, decided to have an abortion because they told her that the baby was not going to make it. And now she's basically, the only thing she says, like, she feels dead inside. Uh, she does have a, a priest that she's talking to, which is great, but I'm basically the only one that, you know, she's still talking. So how to help? Because I feel, like, terrible as well. Well, Daisy, keep praying for her, first and foremost. Make sure she continues that conversation with that priest. And, uh, Doctor, I want to thank you for being here. Maybe her book will help. Your book will help. Suffering, what every Catholic should know. Chaplain of Divine Mercy, straight ahead. I'm sorry. Wish I had a little bit more time. But we'll be back.